Thank you for tuning in. We are your hosts, Monisha Chakrapani and Ambika Sharma. You are listening to Fintech Cafe, a weekly podcast that takes place with a live audience on Clubhouse. This is episode 51 and the topic is Banking as a Service, also known as BAS. For this discussion, we are joined by founder and CEO of Treasury Prime, Chris Dean. We'll get a BAS 101 and discuss how Treasury Prime is helping small and mid-sized financial institutions digitally transform through new embedded finance capabilities. Before we get started, let's do a quick round of intros. I'm Monisha. I manage product strategy by day at one of the big five banks in the United States. I've been in the financial industry for almost two decades and co-host the show with Ambika. And I'm Ambika, the other co-host of the show. This is our hobby project, Fintech Cafe. Thank you for joining. For a living, I'm a product manager in the fintech space. I've been in this industry for almost a decade and I have worked in the US, Europe, and Latin America. Now let's switch over to our conversation with Christy. Good evening, everyone. We're back after a short hiatus. Today is episode 51 and we're joined by Mr. Christopher Dean, Chris Dean. And today's topic is banking as a service, which is quite hot today. So we'll get our primer on what is banking as a service one-on-one, and we'll also learn about Treasury Prime and how they're competing in the space. So Manisha, over to you for your introduction. Hey, thanks, Ambika, and welcome everyone again. Monisha Chakrapani here. I work in the financial services space in product and also co-host on this podcast. And with that, we will kick this off. Just a quick introduction on Treasury Prime. Treasury Prime is the leading banking as a service company that connects banks and fintechs through an API so developers can start building in minutes and launching days. So speed is of essence. Treasury Prime's full integration into core banking systems gives developers access to a wide range of banking services from opening accounts to making payments to issuing cards. Treasury Prime is backed by ventures like DCN's Capital, I think I said that right, NICA Partners, Pacific Western Bank, QD Investors, Astor Fund, The Ventures, and Y Combinator. So we will include the links to Treasury Prime in the in our room today, but you can always visit treasuryprime.com. All right. With that, Chris, I know we've got a quick introduction for you. Thank you again for joining us. You have quite the range of experience from a technology standpoint, a stalwart when it comes to technology. You're most recently the CEO and co-founder of Treasury Prime. You're responsible for all aspects of Treasury, Treasury Prime strategy, execution, and operations. And then prior to this, you served as the CTO of API First company, Standard Treasury. Uh, when the startup was acquired by Silicon Valley Bank, uh, you took on the role of CTO of API Banking for SVB. And even prior to that, you co-founded software companies, including Marquette Systems, uh, Kailuka, and Benefiter, uh, an ACA-based health plan. And so with that, and then you also studied physics at California Institute of Technology. Stellar <laughs> resume there, Chris. Thank you for joining us. So could we get into... Treasury Prime, I mean, you've had a very rich career, obviously, in technology across various verticals. How would you describe banking as a service? I, I think we've used and seen and heard that term in several contexts, but it always eludes me in terms of how to get our arms around the concept. And Chris, to talk, you would have to unmute. And if you're trying to find that, oh, there you go. 
I'm good. Thank you so much for inviting me. I hope this is interesting and fun for everybody. Yeah, like you said, I've done a lot of things. At some point, I based, I was a academic and then for personal reasons, moved up and took a real job here. And my real job was at a startup, which I didn't know what that meant. And founded a number of startups, we sold some for a lot of money. At some point, my dad, my friend Dan said, run product and be CTO at his banking startup. And I have to say that was like eight years ago. And I did I had a bank account and that was pretty much the extent of my banking knowledge. And since then, you know, I ran the FinTech group at SVB and then founded this one. So what is banking as a service? Well, I think banking as a service is the name of a technology. It's really not the name of a, of a business. And what does it really mean? It means I have a way, a technological way that I can access the financial system. So usually that means, and like it means for us, we have an API that sits around all of our banks and it's a common API and you can do any deposit thing you want. You can do open accounts, you can close accounts, you can get statements, you can find your balance, you can issue cards and paper checks and send wires and all the things that you think you can do with a bank. And we can do all that directly with the bank because of our deep integration with them. Or if you want perhaps a cheaper option, we can run you on our own virtual core, which Treasury Prime runs. And the banking as a service space is full of different descriptions about what the business model is. And there's, it's all over the map, but basically the main thing they do is there's a technology that connects to the financial system. That's the basics of what it is. Thanks for boiling that down. And so when you say, in terms of the evolution of the banking as a service model, Chris, could you help us understand how that's evolved? Because I think that concept is not new, but it definitely has picked up steam recently. Sure. It's interesting to look outside the U.S., right? Because it's, it's, it's actually much easier to do in other countries. Like if you go to London or Europe, it is, it is common to have a set of APIs, sometimes of regulatory agencies that demand them, that say, I can access the financial system directly. They make banks actually follow those rules. It's also way much easier for a new bank to be started in other countries and for those banks to take a technology first approach to that. All these things put together are banking as a service. U.S. is interesting because it's, a, it's hard to start a bank. It's certainly hard to start a big bank, but the banking system is just incredibly fragmented. So historically, what a lot of the players who would describe themselves as banking as a service folks have done is they essentially disintermediate a bank. They are kind of a bank, but they don't have a banking charter. They're not regulated like a bank. Often it's a case where they partner with a single small community bank, and then they have a stack that runs on top of that technology so they can do all the things that you know their, their clients want to do. This is an okay solution. At scale, it's pretty expensive, which is why it's rare to see some of the bigger players actually use that. They go straight to the bank. Treasury Prime is trying to straddle those two worlds where we're a software company that allows access to the banking system at any of our many banks. And that's kind of the difference we see. When we, Treasury Prime competes with other for deals, the bigger deals, it's usually with the banks that we're competing with themselves. Like it's our network of banks versus, you know, a standalone bank. And this is really very different than I think a lot of the other players. 
And then in terms of the market opportunity itself, could you help us understand like, how you went about discovering it and what, I think we've seen several figures on what the value of the market share is, but curious to get your take on how you identified it and then what really excited you about the space. Right. The interesting piece is the story. So we had like a whole bunch of us who work now at Treasury Prime, another company, Standard Treasury. Our first client was Silicon Valley Bank. They bought us and we ran the FinTech group there. I ran the FinTech, Jim and I ran the FinTech group there. And the amazing thing is, oh my gosh, the product market fit on the FinTech side is so good. Even our like just, you know, kind of what I would consider like our baby early APIs are just consumed dramatically by the FinTechs. Like people are actually calling up SVB Cole to try to find my numbers so they can get a key and get the license or get, you know, get a license key to our system. Incredibly good. But on the other side, the bank didn't care. <laughs> They're like, big deal, these fees actually aren't that big. And the deposits, at least at SVB, weren't, weren't going to move the needle. So what we saw here was that, like, on one side, huge demand. On the other side, the supply wasn't great. And we started to do our projections. Like, if what if you could fill that supply up and that you could have as many banks as you wanted or maybe a couple of big banks could do a lot of work and then that would that supply that was provided would fill the demand. And if we did that, we're like, okay, where is this going to end up? Well, we did our estimates and I still think we're reasonably right that sometime, you know, 2025 to 2027, we're going to hit a trillion dollars in deposits controlled by fintechs today, or at least in January, that's like 50 billion in deposits. So that means still in the next three or four years, you're going to need order of magnitude growth just activity by fintechs. So we're like still early days. Just the, the opportunity here is huge. Fantastic. And it always excites us to understand like the founding story, Chris, and being a co-founder of several startups, but more recently the Treasury Prime would love to hear sure. that part. Yeah, so Jim and I were running the FinTech group, my co my co-founder buddy, Jim Brewster. And we were running the FinTech group at SCB and we saw this product market fit. It was just incredibly good. And like, cause the first APIs were actually very, that we wrote at SMU were very thin and, but still the demand was huge. So at some point we're like, you know what we should do? We should figure out a way to service these quick, more quickly at higher volumes because the bank just wasn't going to do it. And, you know, we did our analysis and said, well, we could go buy a bank. And that's like, that's a no, we don't want to do that because just, it ends up being crazy expensive. And the first like five or 10 years are so heavily regulated. We didn't think we can move fast enough. We could disintermediate a bank, like find a friendly bank and just like wrap them. And so that the FinTech clients would never actually talk to the bank. And we decided that actually doesn't have a high enough impact for us because really what happens is the bigger clients just graduate and they go straight to the bank because the bank holds all the economic cards here. So we decided, you know, the only way to do this is to create a two-sided network and to bootstrap that whole network. Not an easy problem. We spent the, you know, we have a hack and a trick to do that, or we did have a hack and a trick to do that. We spent the last three years doing that. And since then, like once the network was in place, things really started to take off. And you can see all the things we dreamed about. Jim and I used to walk from our office in, in San Francisco at SCB to the Embarcadero and back and back and forth at lunch, just talking about how to do this. And like our strategy really has played out very well. And that's really worked out. And having founded, you know, three startups and sold them for decent amounts of money, 
Usually that doesn't work. Usually I have to pivot. And this has totally worked. I mean, the plan that Jim and I came up with that day is still basically the same plan we're executing on right now. Okay, so you started, the Treasury Prime at least, was started in 2017, right? Yeah, like Christmas 2017, yeah. Right. Okay, so you have, I I was looking at your website, you have lots of product offerings, the whole gamut actually. So I'll just list them. You offer account opening, debit card offering, payment solutions such as ACH, real time, also account management as well as compliance. So could we talk about some of the use cases and the product offerings and how they fit with the problem statements perhaps? Sure. The basic the basic offering is account opening, and then things hang on top of accounts. So I would like to open a retail account, a personal account, or a business account, bank lingo, that's a commercial account, and or a trust account, or any, any kind of account. And we can do that for you, and we can do that very quickly at scale, and we can do that in all the possible combinations that you can imagine. So it is very common for people to like, let's pick an example. Like my, my favorite example is an early client we have called Azebo. And what Azebo does is they manage a landlord's rental properties. So like your landlord, you have a building, you rent it out, you need to manage the building. You need to do background checks on people. You need to fix their broken, you know, sinks, but you also need to get, take security deposits, pay rent, get rent paid in. You have to pay the mortgage on your building. What Azima does is they built a SaaS app to do that, and they have a bank account attached to it. So they're like one of the classic, in their case, early, you know, embedded finance people, where they have a real product to manage your whole, your whole rental properties. But attached to that is a bank account, and they use Treasury Prime to open bank accounts. They have people pay rent into that. We do reconciliation for them. When their security deposits is sequestered into a different area, and they can manage all that through the APIs. They issue debit cards so that they can, the landlords can go down to the you know, Home Depot and buy a new sink if that's what they need to do. And you can issue paper checks. You can people can pay their rent in checks if they want to. And boy, would I encourage you not to do that, but you certainly can. That's that's a very typical kind of application for us, where someone essentially wants to have banking activity. There's essentially a neo bank, but that's not how the customer sees it. The customer sees it as, here's how I manage my rental property. The bank account's just kind of attached to it. Got it. So I have some experience building account acquisition platforms, so this is good. Yep. <laughs> so when you open an account, you use checking account as an example. So let's go with sure. that. Let's say you're opening a checking account on behalf of this client that you were mentioning. There are a lot of steps that have to happen under, let's call it below the glass or that a customer doesn't know. For example, KYC, there has to be some account decisioning logic. You, you know, you, you run this through the bureaus. So who is doing that behind the scenes for you? Are you partnering with another, let's say a zoo tier, or are you also doing below the glass activities yourself? It, it runs the range, it runs the gamut. We, we do all the possible things because we're at so many banks and you know, often the banks have different rules about what their preferred or acceptable vendors are. You gotta remember the banks themselves, they they have a charter that allows them to be a bank and move money and hold money. It's essentially a monopoly that they have, and boy, are they protective of that. They do not wanna mess with that. They don't want the regulators to get mad at them. So they have picked and worked out with their regulators a technology that's allowed, and we try to guide them, but sometimes they have pre-picked one. 
and we run it for them. So a typical KYC app, for example, I would open an account, you know, I have a building, I'll create an LLC for the building, I'll be the sole beneficial owner of that, or maybe you and I will own it together, and we'll run KYC process on the LLC, on all the beneficial owners, that is the people that actually own that. And it is common for us to use Alloy to do that, which is a great company, but that's not the only way we do it. Sometimes the bank wants to do it themselves, sometimes we use other systems, but however it's done, we do it in a way that is safe and auditable so that when the bank is audited by their regulators, there's no danger and there's no problem because we're so careful about it. Because the main thing that both the bank and FinTech doesn't want is to get that letter from the regulator that says, sorry, we're shutting you down. And if you don't think that happens, you are mistaken <laughs> because that happens all the freaking time. So how do you find the other side of this equation, which would be the the small banks, the medium science bank who are actually holding the deposits? Because as I understand, yours is just a software. You're not holding yep. deposits, right? Correct. We don't hold deposits. We don't hold risk. We're a software company. Either the bank will hold hold the risk or the fintech will hold the risk. There's different pricing schemes for that. But it's always the case that the bank holds the deposits because they are the only legal entity that is allowed to do that. We can help them by like either integrating directly with their core, which we do, which is like core is like the database of like where all the funds are, what the accounts are. They all banks have one. Some of them have many. And we on top of that have our own core, which we can use if it's more economically viable. How do we find them? Frankly, the banks find us. We have great product market fit on the banks because we're so careful and we're kind of known in the industry for being like the gold standard. And they find us ranges from, I think our smallest bank is very small. It's like $200 million in deposits, which is like maybe there's 10 or 15 people who work there all the way up to our biggest bank is, let's just say it's over a hundred billion. And you know, that has tens of thousands of people working at it. And we, we have a good market team that finds them, but mostly it's organic. They find us because they know what we know that it might be $50 billion in deposits today but it's going to be a trillion dollars in deposits real soon. And they don't want to miss that photo again. Okay, got it. So another side to this is, you know, as a vendor, if you are a bank and you're depending on a vendor to do account opening for you, which is key for growth, how sure. then you as a bank are, you're, you're only going to be as good technically as your vendor, because your vendor is your path yeah. to growth here. And you have been CTO in the past, you know, you have a technical background. So I wanted to ask you, how do you innovate on behalf of your customers, both the 200 million balance sheet and the 100 billion balance sheet? Yeah, so for the bank side of the innovation, it's pretty straightforward. Like they know how to open accounts manually. They do it, you know, you can, and it sounds funny, but it is still common for a lot of these banks where you have to go into the branch or like, send DocuSign things back and forth to open a bank account. All we've done is take and wrap an API around that. So the things that we do to you know, make this smoother and faster is we run the KYC quicker. We make sure that there's an audit trail for everything. When we an account gets created, we make sure that everything's registered the proper way. We register it with their cold storage system so that if they get audited that you know they know who's who. We issue debit cards, we can send paper checks if that's what you want. We do all those things. And our trick here is that 
from a technological point of view, Treasury Prime is middleware. That's what it is. It connects to all these different systems. Like we do lots of KYC, but we use Alloy for like, I don't know, 85% of it or so, just because it's a great product. But we don't actually do that directly. We use Alloy to do that. That is very typical. Same way for we issue cards. You know, we have multiple card partnerships. Marquette is the biggest public one that everybody knows about that we're a partner with for their first partner. And what we do is we coordinate all these activities so that the account is created properly. And when they want innovation, mostly what they're relying on is the fintechs to do the innovation. Like the fintechs to do things like, let's figure out a novel way to find new customers. Let's figure out an interesting app flow so that they can sign up customers. We're an API. That's all we do. You know, as I like to say, we are, we're plumbers. Like we're, we connect all the different pipes together. And that, that allows everyone else to innovate because we've removed all the friction from the system. Okay. Thank you. And then another one is payments. On your website, it says that you facilitate, for example, you mentioned Marquetta card issuing, and then sure. there's also bill pay, ACH. Could you talk a little bit about the use case, this use case, but from, for an example of gig economy? So I'm not sure if you have a partnership with, with Uber, but let's say Uber, they sure. need to pay their drivers in real time. How would Treasury Prime in this situation facilitate payments? Yeah, we have clients like that. We have, you know, folks who, you know, are in the creator economy, for example. And the easiest way to do this is just to make a bank account. I think everyone wants to avoid making a bank account because they think it's hard. Use Treasury Prime, it's super easy. So create a bank account and you say, here, Uber driver, here's your bank account. It's a, it has a debit card, it has balance, you can do whatever you want with it. It is a regular bank account. And when you want to get paid, what happens is, that Uber does an internal transfer, that is what in our lingo, that's a book transfer, from their account to the driver's account. Boom, everyone's paid, everyone's happy. It takes milliseconds, very easy to do. Got it, okay. And then I wanted to also go into like your value proposition for Neo. Hey, Ambika. Okay. Yeah. Before we go into Neobanks, can I just have a, a quick clarification on the Uber sure, yeah. rideshare example? And so in that particular case, Chris, do you help establish the bank account, whereas the, the bank account itself is being offered by one of your partners? Is that the way to think about like the role yeah. or how you are the plumber in that process? Yeah, that's right. So there's an API, which is like, open bank account, or actually you can't just open a bank account, you have to apply for it because, you know, if you fail KYC, because they discover you're a money launderer or something, then, you know, they won't open the account. So we have an in, we have an API endpoint, it's really easy. You say, I would like to open this bank account. We run all the KYC, we run all the other checks, we open the bank account. For a personal account, it takes like 45 seconds to do that. We open that account, and then it's just a regular bank account. and. The, it's, the deposits are held at one of our banks, either typically that would be, you know, one of our heavily active banks, like a Grasshopper Bank, a Piermont Bank, or Lending Club Bank. One of those people actually hold the deposits. And then when the driver needs to get paid, they'll just move the money internally. And that's an instantaneous operation, or at least it's a milliseconds operation. Got it. Thank you. That's super helpful. So yeah, now switching to neobanks, what's the value proposition for neobanks who perhaps don't have the tech stack to build a full-fledged bank? Yeah, so for Treasury Prime's an API, 
So you got to have an engineering group who can actually build an API to do anything. So we have a good number of neobanks and they all generally have great engineering groups. And what the, this is why the bank and the FinTech is a perfect match because you know, who's good at technology, tech companies, you know, who's good at marketing tech companies, and you know, who's bad at that banks, banks are not really good about product development or marketing. And this is why it's a perfect pairing because a neobank, let's say Zeta, which is one of our clients who has a, they have a really cool neobank for partners for, you know, couples to manage their finances together. It's a great idea. And they have a great engineering group. They have a great marketing group. And that is something that the banks don't have. So what do the fintechs get from that? They get to focus on what they're good at, which is finding and making customers happy. They don't have to worry about the regulatory side. They don't have to get a banking charter. They don't have to worry about these like super archaic tech stack that the banks are almost forced to use. Everything to them is modern and clean and they can get started and get going and run their business at scale very quickly. Well, you're allowed, you're definitely making go to market faster for these fintechs. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. And like we, that's like a, something that we're, it's very important to us because we want to get help people get started. But the curious thing is that for the ones that work, you know, there's, there's a lot of these that really do work. They start to hit scale and they realize that actually their unit costs are, are the thing here. Like they, they really want to make sure they have really good margins. And frankly, it's the banks who control all of that. So as they get bigger, we on behalf of them, or we on behalf of them, or they can do it directly, negotiate a better deal with the bank. So like, instead of opening an account costing X dollars, it'll cost, you know, half of that. At scale, this is why the bigger player, you know, like Intuit or whoever, go straight to the banks because the margin is so much better. So we both want to do two things. We want to start it like right away, but when you really hit it out, of, you hit that home run and you're at scale, things are working great. We want to be able to make sure that you have the best possible margins. So is there a play for big banks here? hundred percent. Like we have, let me just say, you know, the top 20 banks in the U.S. on our platform and can't really tell you who, but they realize what we're realizing that if you just look at the amount of volume that's going to happen in the U.S., it's like now it's like it's a few bits how much traffic there is on the fintech side, even though it seems really popular to us. But in a few years, it's going to be five and then years after that, it's going to be 10 percent of the business. They really want to be involved here because they realize this is an amazing, huge channel for them. Most banks got their lunch eaten by the tech startups for payments because payments generally have moved more and more into the tech world and more and less and less off the banks. The banks do not want to see that happen again with, with deposit product, which is what we do, and credit products, which we do a little bit now. We have a, we have a single credit product. And the banks are there dead serious about this because, you know, most bankers stick around in a bank for, you know, 10 or 20 years. They remember vividly when Stripe came around and everyone laughed at them. And then they're like, oh, wait, Stripe took all our business. And they don't want to see that happening. Yeah. I mean, as you're speaking, I'm also thinking of like, what, like from a systems perspective, what are the pull and push? I think in the United States, not I think, I know in the United States, our banking sector is rather fragmented for better or for worse. And while you are trying to build some bridges and to imp- improve some efficiencies or bring some efficiencies into the system, I can't help but ask or think rather, 
is that the right way or is that the right way to fix the fragmented system? Or from your point of view, what else can you or Treasury Prime do to make this more of a unified banking system? <laughs> oh, this is such a good question. Yeah, like you said, you count credit unions, there are 10,000 deposit institutions, banks in the US, it's just a lot. And there's an alphabet soup of regulatory agencies and all over the map. And you know, the regulatory agencies, they can't agree with each other. So getting the banks to all step in line is really hard, like turning into a giant aircraft carrier. You know, Everyone's going their own way and it's really hard to move everybody. Treasury Prime's whole point is that we think there is at least for a large subset of the banks, a way that they can have a common API, it's us, that allows, that hooks up into all their disparate backend crazy tech stacks, because they're all different. They're all generally bad. And that we can hook the, and make a common interface so that the banks can do what the banks are good at, which is finding clients and making them happy. We're a technology layer. We can teach the fintechs how to talk to banks, how to deal with the financial system. But at the end of the day, the real relationship, the economic relationship is between the fintech and the bank. And we're just software connecting these two worlds together. Right. You're helping modernize the financial sector. That is it. Um, like, the goal here is, is to like, you know, the reason everyone has reasons why they're doing this for me personally, it's not like to be, make a bazillion dollars. Like I'm fine. I have plenty of money. The reason to do this is because, you know, I grew up in modest circumstances. It sucked to get that, to be on the, you know, get that government cheese. It was not fun. And part of that was that we were unbanked. And I know why, I know why that happened now. It's because it was expensive to bank us. You know, it takes a few, you know, use a traditional bank, it'll be, I don't know, like $100 or so to actually keep an account open. If you modernize that stack, that should go down to pennies. And then we can make everyone and everyone will be happy. Like, that's why you want to modernize this. And that's, I mean, that's our whole goal, to so just make a radical adjustment to how the U.S. banking system works. So talking of technology and modernizing the American financial sector, how does your tech stack or your technical platform differentiates you from your competitors? Well, is it the partnerships? Like you mentioned Alloy a few times. Sure. So just curious. We generally with, I mean, the vast majority of competitors out there, and there's a lot in the U.S. It's like everyone and their brother in the last five years seemed to like raise a 10 million or 100 million round. And like, you know, they, they're basically trying to be a bank without being a bank. You know, I've worked inside a bank. I've worked, I've done successful tech startups. This is not a good long-term strategy. What is a good long-term strategy is to let the bank monopoly play out and like partner with them. So how, how do we differentiate? It's that worldview. Most of these places, if you look at, they're just a service provider. You provide a service, they're pretending to be a bank, you're done. We're not doing that. We're a two-sided marketplace. To use your example, we're like Uber. Uber has drivers and passengers. We have banks and fintechs. By bringing these two people together, everyone can get something they want. The banks can get new business, the fintechs can get great pricing and scale, and everyone's happy there. From a technology point of view, we do something that, I remember everyone laughed at us in the beginning and said, this is stupid, don't do it, is that we do direct real-time integrations to all of our banks. There's not a single bank that we have that doesn't have a direct integration to their core and to their various payment gateways. We don't move files around generally, and, we, we, and 
a particular bank on the core, we never move files around. We do direct API calls such as they are to the banking core to actually make things happen. This gives us abilities that no other competitor has. Most of the competitors have a file system that they've developed where they like make up, you know, ridiculous, I think, banking flat files, which are very common, and they ship them around. There's a lot of latency there, but we can do everything in real time. It means our reconciliation is much faster. It's much more accurate. We know if you want to do something outside of our API, which sometimes you do, you can still do that because we're hooked up directly into the bank. Call your banker, get that line of credit, have it attached to an account. They can attach that account to your API, and boom, now you have a credit product. You have clients doing that right now. That's the main difference, is that we do this direct core integration, which is very challenging. So part of the challenge as you're building a software platform, let's say for account opening, that use case, what about yep. data? So small banks are you know, providing their banking services to the fintechs and fintechs go out and they get new customers. As you said, they were better at marketing and getting, yep. getting acquisition. So what happens to data? Let's say I want, now I have 100,000 customers by now. I, as a fintech, I've used yep. your platform to grow. Who has the data? For me, do I own the data of the customers that I acquired? Does the small business, do you? If I wanted to build personalized experiences, how do I approach that use case? Sure, so the data flows through the fintechs and they have access to all the data that goes from the bank. So if the bank, if the fintechs want to build a personalized experience, they can. That's very straightforward. I would say, I don't know if it's 100%, but it's almost 100% of our fintechs do this. The banks need the data for a separate reason. They need it for regulatory compliance and fraud reasons. So we share that data with the banks and we're the go-between that manages all that. We have a data warehousing product that our banks use and some of our fintechs use, which say, here's every transaction that happened anytime, anywhere, over any history, you can find at any point in time, you can see exactly what the system looked like. And that works great. And that's very easy for people to manage the system. Most fintechs actually don't need that because since the data is flowing through them, they have their own database, you know, it says like, here's the customer, here's the information. They can cache things like their last transactions or they can just call our API and give them the transactions and they can build models on like, what is our, what are our customers doing and how can we serve them better? Got it. Yeah, I would say as a data product manager, that's yeah. something that I look into on a daily basis. Like how can we, now that we have, let's say we did launch a new product, we have adequate sure. amount of sample set, how can we build some insights? How can we per create personalized experiences? So that's also top of mind, thank you. Last question, I just realized we're 38 minutes in, so I need to wrap up so we can open to the audience. <laughs> okay, so that is a question we like to ask from all the founders and you're also a founder, so I would love to ask you this. And that is when Treasury Prime is wildly successful, what does the world look like? What have you achieved when you have made this vision of yours successful oh yeah the economy is better for everyone the u.s economy at least if you look at the world i'm an american i think the u.s has the best economy in the world i also think it has a terrible banking system as much as i love you know my country our banking system needs real help if we're wildly successful treasury prime can fix that we can make it so that poor people have a better banking experience, so that rich people have a better banking experience, so it costs less, you can do, you can do more. 
if you look at our numbers, generally at scale, we're 10 times faster and 10 times cheaper than anybody else. And that's, what does that do? It leads to a level of innovation about things I can't even imagine. I, could we have predicted that, I'll use Uber again, that Uber would have existed without the, without, you know, the modern smartphone? No, I need a GPS, I need internet connection, I need all those things to make Uber work. By making the friction of calling a car, moving it way, way down, that's why Uber exists. By making the friction of creating a bank account and doing any banking thing, the Treasury Prime allows, that means there's gonna be this flowering of innovation. And I'm just looking forward to that. It's gonna be a very different world than in 10 years than it is right now. Hopefully that will happen. <laughs> a, a better right. banking system in the United States, along with the payment system. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Okay, Manisha, I'm sorry. Did you have any last questions before we open up to the audience? No, let's get started with the audience and I'm sure we can keep going. Okay, awesome. So yeah, if you are now interested in joining us on stage, please you raise your hand. That option is in the bottom right. It should be a hand icon. And then any one of us who are, all three of us are moderators, we can bring you on stage. If you're not able to come on stage and ask your question, perhaps it's loud wherever you are, you can also send us your question and we'll read it on your behalf. We are recording today's show, so please first state your name, introduce yourself, and then politely ask your questions. So it looks like Nehal, we have you on stage, so go for it. Thank you, do invite me. And uh, uh, yeah, my question is like, I just joined your room, but my question is how you can handle the compliance part when you are handling the data? Because in FinTech, compliance is a major issue. So i like to know more about that. Sure. I will say, first of all, it's easier than you think. Like, don't, don't worry. It is, it is scary until you know what it is, then you realize how simple it is. What Treasury Prime does, we have a toolkit that we provide people to do this. And either the FinTech does it themselves, or we push that out to the bank side, is actually quite easy. The compliance things you're actually worried about are things related to KYC, which we're already going to run. They're related to AML, anti-money laundering and fraud, which we also run. They're related to cards and collecting data about cards and returns, which we also handle. It's really not very much to do. Like we have a package that you can use and you know, I'm happy to like talk you through that, but it's really very easy. The trick here is that the best way for you to maximize your profits at scale is for you to own that yourself. We can teach you how to do that. I get that in the beginning you don't want to, that's fine. We can off offload it to somebody else, but it's really much easier than people think. That's okay. great. Why I'm asking you because myself, I have a startup called Rainbow Secure where we help a tech business to manage their compliance and help them to protect from login related, cyber attack, cyber breach, and cyber fraud so that's why i'm asking you and also we are working towards to develop one fintech product for consumer yeah that's very exciting like i if you think you have a good product and you think you know your market like now is the perfect time to be doing this stuff i think the market's having trouble right now but i've started three successful companies, which I sold for, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. And the, uh, I tell you the times when we did a product in a downturn was actually way easier than an upturn. So 
Yeah, I encourage you to do that like right now. Yeah, thank you. But like for fintech, like, uh, hi, sorry. sorry, we have like four or five more people, so if it's okay. We would okay. like to go to the next one. Okay, sure. Thank, thank you. you. Mm -hmm. Sean, over to you for your question. Thank you. Yeah, my name is Sean Scott. I am a product manager at a, a large incumbent bank. Chris, a great story. One of the questions I have, sort of, I guess, probably non-linear, is, you know, you've talked a little bit about sort of improving the banking system by sure. providing sort of a two-way, a two-way marketplace. But you know, I think and Monisha and Ambikana are well aware. One of the one of the places where banking also suffers today is just you know sort of experience. Have you ever thought about sort of going after that market in terms of providing a way at scale to improve sort of the user experience, almost sort of, you know, potentially, you know, sort of a competitor to Fiserv? And if not, just curious as to why. You mean like the online banking system or something that Fiserv provides, like one of those? Yeah, because you guys are unique, you know, as you said, right, you've, you've, you're uniquely positioned because you've sort of uh, integrated with, with a ton of banks, right? So you're almost uniquely yep. positioned to then be able to provide sort of if you know the middleware you uniquely build a position to provide sort of you know great great experiences right yeah 100 percent. and like you're right like the you know the classic bank software companies like fis or pfizer or jack henry generally those online banking systems or the account opening systems aren't very good they're frustrating to use and you know that's why there's so many of the big banks like just build their own we don't generally do that we have for the banks because we're more focused on providing them with a new channel of business with fintechs. Like that is an economic channel that creates profits directly for the bank and they really enjoy that. The if we built an online banking system, then you know that's that's actually just making the experience for the existing clients better. And we're actually trying to get the bank to to realize that there's a whole market out there that they are not accessing. That's mainly what we're doing. Having said that we do have a product for banks, which opens bank accounts because it's so easy to do that we provide that to some of our banks. Awesome, thank you, I appreciate it. Thanks, Sean. Chris, welcome. I see the party hat, so I'm assuming you just downloaded the app and joined us. I did, I did, thank you. <laughs> welcome. <laughs> thank you. No, it's been great, thanks for the time. I appreciate your time, Chris. and. Uh, explaining, you know, what you're doing to Treasury Prime. I really appreciate it. You know, for me, I'm in banking as a service at a bank and we built everything in-house. We're a little bit bigger than the typical banks that you deal with, you know, 65 billion in assets. I know that you said you have one or two of the top 20. So I'm just curious to kind of expand a little bit on that. It, you know, the margins are thin on some of the things that, you know, you're offering and that, you know, is offered in Bass generally. And so I'm just kind of curious as to how how you structure that with a large bank so that everybody can you know benefit from from the offerings generally. Sure, it's a great question. Different banks are different, and they want different things. For a lot of our banks, even the bigger ones, even like you know, like one of my my favorite hundred billion dollar bank, not our biggest bank, but it's a great bank. They they even now really want deposits. They have a great loan business and. You know, I, I told you what it was, you would figure out the banks. I'm not going to say what the loan business is, but they really want cheap deposits. And what they've realized is that the fintechs are generally much better at doing customer acquisition at cost, at, at low cost, than the banks themselves. 
So they really enjoy that. That's not true of every bank, but it's true of a lot of our banks. Like we have one FinTech client who has, oh, I don't can't remember the exact number, but it's over a billion dollars in deposits. And for the bank, this is a great payday because they can use that on their credit side, because you know this, I mean, not everyone on the call knows this, but a bank's business is relatively simple, right? There might be some fees there, but the real business is they buy money cheaply and they sell it expensively. Like they take deposits, they find them cheaply, and then, then they write some loans and they, those are more expensive. And you know, what's the margin there? Pick a number, you know, percent, 2%, 6%, you know, 10%, depending on what they're doing. And that's great. That's a great business. That's why banks are great. And we can help them with one side of that problem really easily. And our credit product actually does the other side as well. Great. Thank you. Lindsay. Oh, I should introduce Lindsay. So, Chris, I don't know if you know her already, but Lindsay and I, we actually were in a cage fight. What was it, a month ago? At Bindo Keep Bay. rubbing and, it uh, in. We both had to keep rubbing it in. <laughs> so, no, so no, 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 no. I'm not rubbing the results, I'm rubbing the process. So we both had to answer a question, actually, whether, and the question was that embedded finance or banking as a service, it's good for banks. And so, Lindsay, welcome. And maybe that's the question you're going to ask, but ask other questions. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Hi, Chris. Good to reconnect here. We've Hi. previous alum of this show, and you, your team has been on our, our FinTech Fridays. I, I We can resurface this question. It was a little bit adjacent to what I was thinking around the embedded finance space and sort of my answer to that that cage fight question was it, it is a good thing for banks because literally it's all that they have. Now your position on this earlier, you know, you said that they're good at managing the customer relationship and my caveat to that is they're losing their customers to fintech companies because the experience and time to money is so much more efficient given the things that Atomic, our company, has enabled with, you know, swifter, faster deposits. But if the banks want to survive this, they need to start to innovate within their their infrastructure, and that's something that you know, with your product embedded at a modern, a modernizing bank, right? Like that is a potential future path for the bigger banks. And less of a question on that, but if in that scenario, I, my curiosity does kind of tie to that: the cost sure. of maintaining the account. Have you all been able to sort of quantify the percentage savings? Because there's stats out there that say, you know, it costs you know bank X hundred millions of dollars a year to maintain all these you know phantom accounts. And the argument that we would try to make for what we do is, you know, swift or cheaper customer acquisition costs via, you know, a switch that's sub $4 versus a $400 incentive. But curious what data yeah. you guys have been able to report back in, in like some wins over in that, on that side of the house. Sure. Great question. Lots to unpack. I, I guess I disagree. I think we're defining words differently here. When you're saying banks are losing their customers by drove, what they're generally losing is the retail clients. That's the personal ones and the SMBs, because those are generally, there's large volumes of them. They're very picky about the interface. I don't know of a FinTech which has taken a single customer from Silicon Valley Bank. And those are the, those are the kind of clients that the banks are good at dealing with. These large corporate entities, they can have a relationship with them. If you're at SVB, they can take you to a Niners game and they can send you a bottle of wine. Those clients, the banks love those. And those are, if you think about it, that's what a fintech is. And so the relationship between a bank and a fintech becomes very strong. That's one. Two, the, uh, like, what's the customer, what's the cost of holding the couch open? Oh my gosh, but boy, it depends. If you, if you want to use our Encore product, which is, you know, I wouldn't necessarily encourage you to do that, it can be pretty expensive. And if you're one of the bigger clients who, 
you know, they have large accounts with say, you know, $50,000 or $100,000 in each account, you kind of don't care that, you know, that might cost 50 cents or a dollar a month to keep the account up. It's just, it's a rounding error. But for a lot of the smaller, especially the retail media banks, they really do care. And for that, I encourage you to use the Treasury Prime ledger, which is much, much cheaper. And you don't have to pay a tax to FIS or Pfizer. There's reasons for doing both ways. But if it costs is what you're concerned about, then really you should use a modern, small core like ours. Makes sense. Thank you. I'll yield yeah. my time, my eight minutes <laughs> to my comrades. There you go. William, William, thanks. Welcome on stage. Please introduce yourself with your question. Nice to meet you, Chris. So my question is for, for Neobank, especially for those who wants to build their own API, you know, basically sure. do DIY and to shy away from the best players. What's your advice? I know probably you're going to say it's, it's going to be easier working with a banking service like you guys and also cheaper as well. But probably yeah. people don't realize that it's not so cheap working with a platform like you guys, like those monthly fees, especially for a startup. Yeah. So I guess my question is, how, how do you, yeah, what, what's your genuine advice on that for a new bank to scale? Yeah. Well, it's tricky because in the U.S. you have to have a banking charter somewhere in the stack or you can't hold deposits and you can't issue cards and all that different stuff. So you need to have a bank somewhere. So the bank is going to have to get paid. And you're, if you want to hook up directly with a bank because you think that's be cheaper, it's generally not. But I would encourage you to like call Evolve, call Green Dot, see if you can get on their radar, see if you can get their queue. Those are banks and maybe Cross River are those really hard to get their queue. Those banks will do things that start scale are cheaper, but to start out, they're generally pretty expensive. And so what's your next step? Well, uh, you can use us or, you know, and we're and to start out. There's no question. We're like a pricier option because we are, you know, we have so many features and we're the gold standard and all that. We, but the reason to start with us is because as you scale, as you get bigger, we get so much cheaper because we start to approach the bank pricing because it's, it's, at the end of the day, we're a software company. We're not trying to be a bank. I will tell you there's one final way to do this, which is not what you asked, but it's kind of a great way, and that is to buy a bank. You can buy a bank, you can turn them on, you can spend, I don't know, $50 million to do that, and then your costs are very low after that $50 million to spend. They're not super, they're not nothing because you still have to deal with regulators and everything, but it is cheap. That's what, you know, Colin did recently, you know, hockey did that, like the hockey family bank. And that's great. <laughs> that's a great idea. I don't think it can grow that big, but it's still a great idea. It's very cheap. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for your thoughts. You're welcome. Great. Thank you, William. Next we have James. Hi, my name is James Sontag, I'm a developer at FinTech. The question that I have, I'm a little curious on your matching process. I'm sure your partner banks, they have different requirements for different fintechs and such that they're, they're partnering with. What is, that, what is that application process like for the fintech that wants to get involved? Yeah, so you know, we, we have a whole matching process here to find the right bank. At the extremes, it's easy, right? If you are a player who has like a billion dollars in deposits, there's not a lot of banks that, you know, 
a community bank that already has a billion dollars can't really take that. So you have to go to a different bank. That's easy. If you're a crypto problem, then, you know, we have two banks who can do that. So it's one of those two. If you're a cannabis folks, there's like, I think three right now. So it's one of those three. For a more general, straightforward problem, like just a regular, you know, payment app or embedded finance thing, then generally it goes by industry. Like different, different banks want different kinds of industries because they think they'll understand them. Like one of our banks really likes real estate. So we send everybody there. And why do we do that? Because that ends up being a better experience for the bank and for the fintech. Treasury Prime is very carefully designed. So the only way we make money is if both the bank and the fintech are successful so that there's a constant feedback loop where we're all trying to improve. And by that, you know, we can help the fintechs grow bigger and bigger because they're going to pay us more. You know, it'll be less, you know, less unit cost. So maybe the price goes down, but the totals goes up. So that's what we tend to do. That's how we do the matching. There's a marketplace, you know, system we have in place. It's mostly in two or three people's heads because we just know it, but we have, a, we have some software now. Great. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you, James. And then I think we have about two minutes home stretch and two questions by above. Welcome and introduce yourself, please. And I'd love to hear what you've got to say. Hey, guys. Hi, Chris. Uh, Hi. I am chief of staff of a company called Avon. And I know Chris for a very long time. And I and yep. Lindsay host uh, <laughs> a show for <laughs> and Chris was yep. right, not a long time ago. So I was joking with Ambika back channel that it's like invasion of the FinTech Friday crew. My question for Chris is, how do you, how do you harmonize sort of like various compliance nuances across various fintechs if they are on the same banking core, right? Like, like somebody who's, who's, who's like, like, for example, Avon, we do home equity cards. Our line sizes are $100,000 to $50,000. And somebody else might be a fintech, which has, you know, small dollar, like they're, they're, maybe they're building credit builder loans. So our fraud you know, tolerances are KYC standards might be vastly different than others. And so how do you, how do you help the bank and the fintechs actually deal with it, with your platform? Yeah, it's a great question. Cause you're right. It differs really on the, both in the bank in terms of the, and also on the problem, right? Like if most of your fraud vectors are on the card side, it's really different than if you're having an attack on, you know, people trying to spoof accounts and, and create fake accounts and do money movement that way. It's really quite a different problem. And so we just have a full suite of tools. You know, we, we have our own internal tools and we partner with some other people so that we handle all that for you so that we can say like, here's what's happening. Here's what's not happening. Then you can make a decision about what you want to do. You can say like, I want to turn up or turn down my controls. Like, the simple example is KYC. You know, it's maybe not the most interesting, but it's the simplest one. Like, you can be more careful and reject more people applying for accounts if you want. Or you can be more risk tolerant and it can take more. And the fact that you can use our platform to turn those dials to wherever it makes sense for your business is kind of the key to Treasury Prime success. Because every bank is different and every problem is different. And so you need to manage the risk carefully. And I think the smarter, in the beginning, just use our defaults, it'll be fine. But as you grow and understand your client better, you'll be able to turn those dials and really increase your margin. Thank you. Sure. Thank you. 
Great. Well, time just flew by, Chris. So thank you. We like to give you the last, like, you know, if you want to make some last comments. Before we do, I just want to make an announcement again to everyone. So this is episode 51, which means next week will be episode 52 and one year anniversary of the show. And so we're hosting a virtual blood drive. I've pinned the link here if you want to pledge. Oh, it didn't work. Yeah, it's starting to break up again. I can reinforce that. I think what Amoka was trying to say is, as you know, with the year anniversary, we're trying to raise awareness around donating blood. And so please, if Red Cross is the way you would like to, or otherwise, please go ahead and pledge. I think it is for a good cause. Definitely one of the easier ways to save a life. So thank you so much for your interest in trying to help our cause as we round off the year for FinTech Cafe. And Chris, once again, thank you so much for joining us today. Very informative session. I know we had to reschedule. Appreciate your patience while we managed to get you on calendar and hope to hope to talk to you again. And with that, we'll call this an evening. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks, guys. Thanks. Thanks, everyone. That's all for today. Thank you for listening. If you like the discussion, we welcome you to join us during our live shows every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific on Clubhouse. We'd be delighted to have you there. You can also find other episodes on all major podcasting platforms, such as Spotify, Apple, Google, Audible, wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate if you could leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. Until next week, be safe. Thank you.